We're in the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, building on the foundation of the first three chapters, in which Paul laid out in great detail this message. This is who you are in Christ. This is your identity. Now, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul is making it clear that the only natural, healthy, God-honoring response is to live out that identity in a pattern of holy living. That's why Paul's in the weeds. He's talking about anger and stealing and unwholesome talk and urging instead kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as, in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word, for the challenge it brings to our lives, and for the example and power of Jesus. Enable us to be imitators of our Savior and Lord as you empower us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We start with grieving the Spirit. That's the first phrase in our passage, and it sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What will help us understand this is back in chapter 1, Paul wrote this, When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. A seal in ancient times was a mark of authenticity, sometimes a mark of ownership. And so in the middle of urging these Ephesian Christians to live holy lives, Paul is basically saying this, reminding them, you belong to God. That's who you are. 1 Corinthians 6 puts these ideas together when Paul, also the Apostle Paul, writes this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When you act in a way that's inconsistent with the one who bought you, who happens to be the one who is in you, you grieve the Holy Spirit. You act as if you belong to another, as if your deepest love and highest loyalty is to something or someone more worthy than God himself. It's a mismatch of behavior to identity, and that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. It's a mismatch of practice to identity, like a teenager who continues to act like a seven-year-old. There's a mismatch like the armed guard who runs away from the intruder rather than towards the intruder to protect the school kids. There's a mismatch of behavior to identity. And when that happens spiritually, Paul is telling us the Holy Spirit is grieved. 
Paul is saying, you've been created in the image of God. You belong to the one who bought you. You've been redeemed, bought back from slavery to sin at the cost of the very life of the Son of God. And now, live like a free person. Don't go back and choose death. Here's another angle. John's gospel, uh, uh, Jesus, in John's gospel, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit who is to come and tells us that the Holy Spirit's primary role is to testify about Jesus, is to serve as a witness, right? A witness is this is true. I know this to be true. This is a fact. I'm putting my, myself, my name, my voice behind it. So when we don't believe that the love of Christ is enough, when we don't think it'll satisfy us and we go looking for other things either in place of that love or to, or to supplement that love, when we fail to, to live in the, in the reality that we've been redeemed from slavery to sin and we are to no longer live in it, then we reject the Spirit's testimony. We're saying, I don't believe you, Holy Spirit, when you're t- pointing to and telling me about what Jesus has done, who he is and what he's done for me. I don't believe you, which grieves the Spirit. Like a parent who has sacrificially, generously, lovingly parented a child, but the child returns a thankless attitude and even accusations that you don't love me, you don't know what's best for me, that grieves the heart of a mother or a father, right? To see a, a child grow up and move away from God, from family, from core values, grief is not too strong of a word. How much more powerful is the grief of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we reject His perfect love? That leads us secondly to um, sealed for redemption. In that same sentence, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the one with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Most times in Scripture when when we read of the day, it's talking about one particular day. It's the day when Jesus comes back, when he completes history, when he finally and fully puts away everything that is evil, any, any, anything that is of sin, and finishes not only history itself, but, but wraps up salvation history. Redemption can sound like religious speak. It can sound like a churchy, jargony term. So don't miss Paul's simple language here behind the term. He's saying the Holy Spirit is the Father's assurance that you will be set free, that you will be liberated. That freedom is in contrast to what the next verse warns against, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. It's piled on top of each other, these terms that are really redundant for emphasis. What's Paul saying here? When you're consumed with anger, rage, malice, when you are marinating in resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, when you cannot escape that cycle, you are enslaved by what others have done towards you. You can't stop thinking about the other person's sin about their folly, about their selfishness, their pride, their rudeness, 
It all wields power over you. One thought about that person or what they said to you can put your whole day in a tailspin. Your inability to let things go. Your choice to rage, to stew in bitter anger. That's enslavement, not freedom. That's exactly the opposite of what the Holy Spirit wants for you. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. The Apostle James in his letter, chapter 4, says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures." He's describing anger towards others, even aggressive, violent action. We could also put into this same heading, um, aggressive, angry thoughts, words. It's all rooted, James tells us, in unfulfilled desire. Simply put, it's all rooted in not getting what you want. Why do you get angry? It's because you don't get what you want. What might that be? Maybe you demand other people's respect, and when you don't get it, you rage. You deserve it. Nobody appreciates what I've done, the contribution I make, the sacrifices um, that my life involves, and unfulfilled desire. You didn't get what you want. You didn't get a, a pat on the back. You didn't get the adulation, the recognition, the raise. The, the seat at the table, whatever it is, anger comes out. Maybe your unreasonable desire that's unfulfilled is you expect not to be sinned against, at least in certain ways, right? And when people sin against you, you're surprised. You're shocked. How could they do that? A fallen person in a fallen world, you're living in an illusion, but your unfulfilled desire brings about unrighteous anger. That's why a kid throws a temper tantrum even after getting a, a, a toy at the store because it's not the right toy. It's not the toy that everyone else has. It's, it's not a good enough toy. It's, it's, it's the reason the little girl throws a temper tantrum even after getting a fresh cupcake on her plate because she asked for, even demanded, the yellow one and you have the audacity to give her the purple one. Unfulfilled desire. It afflicts all of us. When we don't get what we want, anger, quarreling, fighting, bitterness, rage, every form of malice. Paul could not have been more comprehensive in verse 31. But the Holy Spirit has sealed you for redemption for freedom from all of this, when you allow yourself to enter into this vortex of unfulfilled desire and rage, that's enslavement. And there is no solution. Um, it's certainly not. The antidote is certainly not just trying harder to do what the very next phrase says, to be kind and compassionate to one another. Just do that a little more. Think happy thoughts. Uh, do a nice a gesture towards somebody, and it'll all make it better. No, it won't. And Paul doesn't stop there. Again, the very next phrase after that is, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. 
That's where we'll end with, thirdly, power to forgive. What is forgiveness? We need to ask that question because we're surrounded by and we're, we're improperly influenced by counterfeits for forgiveness, unbiblical substitutes instead of the biblical real deal. Let's start with saying what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting, partly because it's impossible to just forget what other people have done against you in sin, how they've wronged you, wounded you. And by the way, God himself does not forget. The Scripture says he chooses not to remember. That's something different, right? He doesn't say, oh, I forgot. Well, you got away with it. I didn't think of it in time, so there's no consequence. It's not what God does at all in biblical forgiveness. It's not forgetting. Forgiveness is not making light of someone's sin against you. It's, it has nothing to do with saying, you know what, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Move on. Because the reality of it is you're not really moving on, are you? You're saying the polite thing. You're, you're a conflict avoider. You don't want to make a, a scene. You'd rather talk about the person rather than resolve this issue face-to-face. And secondly, that's unbiblical because their sin against you very well may be the one thing that is the impediment to their spiritual health and growth. And so to say, don't worry about it, it's no big deal, is to allow them to stay in an unhealthy pattern. It's not what biblical forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not mean that you throw out the idea of justice. Justice and forgiveness can coexist. I'll say a little bit more about that later. And, and forgiveness, lastly, is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. You and I are not going to feel like forgiving the person who has greatly sinned against us. We could say a lot more. It could be a, a mini-sermon series on its own. But those are some simple statements about what forgiveness is not. Here's what forgiveness is. It starts with this premise. Biblical forgiveness is a promise. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Biblical forgiveness is a promise. And so when God says, I will forgive you, which he does say, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is saying, I promise to no longer hold against you your sin. I promise. I promise to no longer bring up your outstanding debts to me that your sin has incurred. I promise to not expect you to make payment for that debt. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. It's paid for. So when someone insults you, when they break a promise, when they talk about you behind your back, when they betray you, yes, you grieve in pain. This picture of biblical forgiveness does not make us robots who, you know, who, who just have sinful things just pinging off our armor. It hurts. You grieve. Remember from last week, there's a righteous anger that is opposition to what is not the way it's supposed to be. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You grieve. You feel pain. But if you entrust yourself and your reputation, your status, your name, if you entrust your successes or your failures to God and say, that's your business, Lord, King, if you access the power that's offered to you, Holy Spirit power, resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, 
you can let go. You can forgive. You can taste freedom. When you do forgive, again, forgiveness is a promise. When you do forgive the person who sinned against you, what you're saying is, if it's a biblical variety here, not a, 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 a counterfeit, you are promising, I will no longer hold against you this sin that you've committed against me. You're letting go of your desire to bring about justice. Vengeance is given up. You entrust justice to the Lord. He will not let justice go. That would be a, um, a violation of his core integrity. But you entrust that to uh, the God himself. And this is significant. When you promise, I will not hold this against you any longer, what you're also communicating is, I am willing to absorb the, the cost of your sin against me. If it was a punch in the face, you're not reciprocating with a punch. You are literally absorbing the blow. If it was an insult, you're going to take that criticism of who you are and absorb that blow. You'll absorb the insult. You'll, you'll absorb the, self, uh, the disrespect. You will pay the price and not expect or force the other person to pay for their own sin against you. I promise I will not hold it against you any longer. And the other person's sin, as serious as it may be, no longer wields power over your thoughts, your attitudes, your ability to work and play and rest and, yes, absolutely, worship. Because nothing inhibits the worship of the king who has forgiven you more than an unforgiving heart. When you forgive, you taste freedom. And no, perfect freedom, full justice won't come until Christ's return, the day of redemption, when God will vindicate his people, when he will bring about perfect and pure justice. But until then, as you are empowered by God to forgive, you experience a measure of what God has in store on the last day. Let's be honest with ourselves. We have some categories of forgiveness don't we? There are some things that we can and we have forgiven. There are other things that we have done or, or maybe in our minds we say, you know what, if I had to be honest, that, that'd be tough. But I think I could forgive that. It might take me some time. I think I could forgive that. The problem is the third category. I have something in my mind that I would have to say before God, I'm not sure I could forgive that. Ever. Here's the problem. The Bible does not give us one or two or three opt-outs, free passes, um, to say we are absolved from the, the calling to forgive just as Christ forgave us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, at least that, that portion of the, the uh, sermon, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and he gives the model of what we call the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it earlier this day, uh, th this service. And it, included in that is verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
Some of you are more familiar with the, the term trespasses. It means the same thing, right? Forgive us our sins, our trespasses, as we also have forgiven those who trespass against us. And they're familiar words. Here's the problem. St. Augustine put it well. He called this line, singular line in the Lord's Prayer, the terrible petition. Can you think of why he would call it the terrible petition? Almost whispering, you don't want to pray that. You just don't. Here's why. What we're praying is, God, forgive me just as I have forgiven other people. Uh, uh, wait a second. Wait, God, I didn't mean that. Hold, bring it back. Hello? Are you still there? Can I, can I stop this email from getting to the recipient? Uh, what, what, I, what I actually meant was, would you be willing to forgive me much more than I have ever forgiven anyone else? That, that, that's really what I mean, God. This is a terrible petition. Because we condemn ourselves to the extent that we are unwilling to forgive someone who has sinned against us. And meanwhile, we want freebies from God. We want grace, undeserved favor. John started our service by emphasizing. There's something wrong there. But there's more. This is the only line in the prayer that Jesus determines in his perfect wisdom This requires two more verses. This requires extra commentary after the model prayer I'm going to give to my people. I'm going to explain this one line a little bit more, and that's in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, right after the prayer. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow terrible petition. Why such strong words? Because your refusal to forgive others who have sinned against you is one of the strongest and most accurate indicators that you do not know and trust in, at least enough, the forgiveness of God the Father towards you. That's why Jesus saw it necessary to add a couple of more thoughts to make sure we understand the depth of what we're praying. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others' debts. Graham and Gladys Staines were missionaries in India, ministering among lepers with their three children. And one day, Graham and his boys were out in a remote village ministering overnight, slept in their car, and woke up to a group of militant extremists who doused their car in gasoline and set it on fire, and not only that, but prevented the guys from leaving their vehicle and blocked rescuers coming in to save these helpless victims. When Gladys was told by a close friend the devastating news she turned to her one remaining family member, a 13-year-old girl, and she said, we'll forgive them, won't we? 
And a 13-year-old girl who just lost her daddy and her two brothers said, Mommy, yes, we will. When people at school said to the daughter that they couldn't understand how she could forgive these evil men who murdered her family, she came home and she said, Mommy, I can't understand how they can't understand why we have forgiven. She was so gospel-saturated. She was so aware and committed to and trusting in the forgiveness of God for her in Christ as a sinner. She was living in such integrity that she knew if she was going to be the recipient of God's forgiveness, how could she withhold forgiveness towards others even in the face of such evil? Mommy, I can't understand how they can't understand why we forgive. Because isn't this what believers in Jesus saved from our sin? Isn't this what we do? And if you would honestly say the same, as I would have to, that at least to some extent, you can't understand how these two Christians could forgive these evil men who murdered their family members, the only way we will grow in understanding is to personally and more deeply grasp the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you and I do not deserve rescue, but the Father has sent His Son to pay the price that we might be forgiven. When the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it means all. Every human being without exception for all time. Every single one of us has rebelled against our Creator, has disbelieved His promises, which means we don't believe His heart is good towards us when we sin. And treason, rebellion against the King, treason is a capital crime. It's punishable by death. And yet, for every believer in Jesus Christ, the Father promises This is biblical forgiveness. The Father promises not to hold our sin against us. How can He do that and be a just judge? We've talked about this throughout Ephesians. He can only do that and make that promise and mean it because He has instead held our sin against the Son and asked Him to go to the cross and experience hell and be under the power of death for three days in our place. That's how the promise can be kept, and God can remain just. If you are a believer in Jesus, do you know how deeply and broadly and shockingly you have been forgiven? Do you know that? Do you realize that your sin brought about the murder of the perfect son who truly did no wrong? and deserved only pure blessing. If you're in Christ, you have been forgiven everything. How then can any of us followers of Jesus turn around and fail to forgive much smaller somethings when others sin against us? When Paul says back in Ephesians 4, Verse 32, be kind and compassionate, 
to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. He's doing much more than setting out an example. You see what Jesus did? Do that. You see how I'm dribbling the ball, how I'm handling this puck, how I'm shooting on goal? Do that. Is Paul saying that? He is. He's saying much more. Because if that was all he was saying, do that. You see Michael Jordan, when he does that 360-degree slam from the free throw line? Do that. You say, not possible. I'm a mere mortal. And if that was all Paul said, forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. Do that. Our proper response would be, I can't. I can't. Forgive as Gladys Staines and her daughter did. Even that, we'd have to say, I can't. I don't have the power. I I don't have the strength to lay down my sword that um, represents my strong, primal desire to get revenge on those who have robbed me of my family members. I can't. I'm too weak. And that's where, but God comes into play. Those are gospel words, are they not, GRC? But God, He's given you, if you're in Christ, He's given every believer the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Remember, the Holy Spirit is a witness to Jesus. He gives testimony to who He is. He points to the sacrifice of Jesus, which brings forgiveness, which alone provides the power for you and I to forgive others. The only way we would have strength to forgive is in more and more deeply knowing and experiencing the forgiveness of God for us sinners in Christ and accessing the Holy Spirit's power that keeps us in that reality. You were lost, but now you are found. You were impoverished, but now in Christ you have all things. You were dead, Ephesians 2, but God made you alive with Christ. And now, yes, painful as it is, you have the power to forgive because you have been forgiven and you rest in this gospel truth. There's one more gospel truth that empowers. Chapter 5, verse 1. You thought I'd never get to chapter 5, didn't you? Here we are. (laughs) Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. That's a gospel truth. Paul says, you're dearly loved children if you follow Jesus. Where does that status come from? 5.1 comes from 1.5, where Paul wrote, For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Sorry, that was four. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. You are a son or a daughter because the Father has adopted you into his family at the cost of his son, Jesus. And now, Paul says, he simply folds it into his direct address, and now, as dearly loved children, as those who have been claimed from death and destruction and brought into the very family of God as dearly loved children. You see, that status at the heart of the gospel, sonship, daughtership, that provides the power 
to be able to, verse 2 of chapter 5, walk in the way of love, hear these words again, just as Christ loved us. Your response is, I can't. God says, I know. That's why I've made you a child. That's why I've planted my Holy Spirit in you. That's why I am prompting you to enter more deeply into the mystery of Christ. Every time you sin and you come to me in repentance and you experience more freshly the wonder and power of forgiveness at the cross of Christ, you gain more power to do the same, to walk in the way of love. You know, last thought. Biblical Christians are often known for, we develop a a reputation too quickly for what we're against. That's the world's image of the church. You know, you're against all these things. Thou shalt not. And and some of that, look, is is necessary, right? In, In a world that disdains anything of the holiness of God, anything of the truth and authority of the Word of God, it's necessary. In fact, we've already seen over the last few weeks, Paul getting in the weeds and talking about what things that we need to put off, get rid of. That's not you. Don't act like that anymore. It's necessary to see what we're against. But here, in this simple phrase, Paul also tells us what to be for, positively. So, so don't just focus on the negative prohibitions. Celebrate the positive exhortations Don't just reject wickedness. It's necessary, but don't just do that. Cultivate love and beauty and generosity. Don't just focus on impurity. Celebrate and affirm purity. GRC, Church of Christ, let's be known for radical generosity and kindness and compassion and above all, a willingness to forgive because this was the way of Christ who made it possible for sinners like us to be called children to follow in his footsteps. Let's pray. God, Jesus is glorious, deserving of all worship. And your spirit reminds us of these truths. In our battle with unforgiving hearts, Lord, show us Jesus, bloodied and disfigured, nails through his flesh and bone, dying an unjust death, that you, the judge of all the earth, might be able to forgive sinners like us. Lord, do not allow us to marinate in anger, rage, malice, every form of it. Free us. Free us through forgiveness and love in the way of Christ. By the power of the gospel of Christ, we pray for his glory. Amen.